Happy Sabbath! We love that we get to connect both with those of you who are in the Loma Linda area and if you are in the Loma Linda area, please say hi. If you come to our church, um, we love the fact that so many of you have just come up to us and said how much you appreciate what we do. We appreciate you. We do it for you. So if this is something meaningful, you can support us in two ways. Uh, way number one is simply your prayers uh, and say hi. I'm talking to you, David Smith. I shared what you said with about Jamie's presentation, and it, it was just so wonderful to see one of my colleagues be affirmed in that way. So please come up and say hi. If you don't live in Loma Linda, we love your emails, your letters, uh, smoke signals, or any other way that you communicate with us. And if you want to partner with us um, in what we do in getting uh, this message and the broadcast out to you, you know what to do. Just uh, hit louc.org and uh, tap give, and you can give uh, to our media department that makes all of these things possible. We're going to continue talking about the Three Angels message this quarter. And as we do, I want to turn your minds and your hearts to the one who sends uh, the message of the, these angels, uh, this cosmic God. And so let us stop and pause and have a word of prayer. God, we want to thank you for your blessings. Above all, we want to thank you for your care. And your care is shown in so many ways. It is shown in the way you relate to us. It is shown in the way you connect with us. It is shown through the pages of scripture and it shines in the lives of others. And so as we think about these messages that we find in the book of Revelation, as we think about ways in which to better give you honor and glory, worship and praise, fear and wondering, we pray that we do that accompanied by the grace that allows for our mental images of you mm. to connect with the transcendent reality that is you. Thank you for allowing us broken thought in the moments to speak about you in complete and incomplete sentences. Pray that you stay with our broadcast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fear God and give him worship and glory is a message. The message that uh, the first angel gives. And that message is immediately followed by fallen, fallen is Babylon. Now the lesson lingers over uh, the 12th verse of uh, Revelation chapter 14. And it is uh, this uh, passage that we're going to analyze as we talk about how this notion of patient, endu patient endurance commands of Jesus and the faith of Christ are all linked to the way we interpret uh, the messages of the angels. Joey, what stood out for you this week as you uh, perused through our lesson study? Um, well, of all the angels, three angels message. This is my favorite, personal favorite one. Mm. I mean, the second angels message is a little bit, I mean, third message <laughs> also right. a little bit depressing. This one is something that I really can sink my teeth into this whole idea of fearing God and giving him glory. I mean, that seems to be at the heart of the message of scripture also. Mm. Not the other, not that the other two angels messages aren't necessary. They absolutely are, but this is my personal favorite of the mm. three. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about this last week, Joey, so just in a little bit of, as a review, um, we, we talked about this idea of fear of God and judgment and kind of how 
our original ideas of and our language of what that is impact the way in which we read that particular passage. And I think we found, as we were wrestling through the passage last week, we found some winsome and Christ-oriented ways of reading those two, those two words, this idea of God as creator and of us allowing for worship to be our response to the critical hour in which the world is in uh, for John and also the critical moments in our life. The lesson then shifts a bit um, from this idea of fearing God and giving him glory and honor and worship to this notion, which was kind of the central uh, memory verse or the central passage for the lesson this, uh, this week, which is patient endurance, keeping the commands and having the faith of Jesus. So it seems like these people who are equipped to fear God and give him uh, glory and honor, these people that are able to recognize that the critical moment in earth history is here, have three primary characteristics. And those are simply stated, stated they have patient, they possess patient endurance, uh, they keep the commandments, and they possess uh, the faith of Jesus. Are th is that a comprehensive list uh, to define the remnant? Um, is there anything else uh, that, that needs to be added? Maybe anything that needs to be subtracted? <laughs> or um, is there maybe a, a way in which we can look at this passage, Revelation 14, 12, which, was, which has been foundational for Adventists, and uh, analyze it a bit closer to, to kind of understand mm. what John is attempting to say, uh, to say amidst the broad narrative that is Revelation. Well, it does seem like um, it isn't completely all-inclusive, right? How could it? How could it be all-inclusive of everything that defines the people of God? There seems to be a particular message that John is trying to communicate, that God is trying to communicate through John. Um, but I, I am interested, I am fascinated by this connection between the keeping of the commandments that the lesson talked about, the keeping of commandments and the idea of fear, mm -hmm. of fearing God, that there does seem to be a link throughout scripture, Old Testament scripture, and certainly here in the book of Revelation, the three angels message, that that fear of God leads to the keeping of his mm. commandments. That, 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 you know, sometimes, and the lesson talked about this, that there is this temptation to say, well, because God's grace covers us, that means that we can just basically disregard the commandments mm -hmm. and live our own way. Mm -hmm. And that, if you're being honest with scripture, is not the message of scripture. And the vast majority of Christians, I think, would agree with that, that, that keeping the commandments is essential an essential part of following or fearing God. And so I, I am interested about that connection. How does a fear of God, and we talked about the fear aspect, right? How fear is not just like how we think of fear as like, I'm, I'm a scared, mm -hmm. right? It's not like I'm scared of God, but it is this awe mm -hmm. uh, of God, this worship of God. How does that lead to the keeping of his commandments? Mm. Yeah. So. Joey, you know this, typically this passage um, throughout history uh, has been interpreted as kind of these two aspects to the gospel, right? And yeah. the lesson touches, scratches a bit at that, uh, where you're combining both law and grace. Mm -hmm. Other interpreters of Revelation see Revelation 14, 12, and immediately say, okay, so the remnant is able to do one thing. They are able to recognize the value of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. i.e. the commandments, and uh, the, the beauty of the gospel, i.e. the New Testament. And so it is in this, much like uh, the, the traditional interpreters of Revelation uh, look at the two witnesses, right? Old and New Testament, mm -hmm. and kind of join them as the full testimony of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, some, uh, some interpreters uh, throughout time have seen that uh, and, and made that connection. I think that is partly true, and as we've been saying uh, with Revelation, there's not just one way to read or appropriate the symbolism, yeah. but 
we could uh, we could sit here and simply reread the lesson, and um, and I think we we would agree, as you've mentioned so articulately, with a lot of uh, premises that the lesson is making. But let's face it, friends, you tune in to see what crazy um, other alternative views we can uh, we can posit, and sometimes there's pushback, and sometimes there's richness, and sometimes there's something that you connect with. I found I find this idea really interesting um, because John connects these two notions, right, fear and faith, mm-hmm. with this idea of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So there's the keeping the commandments, and there's the having faith, and that is seen through through the lens um, or understood through the lens of Jesus. And what mm-hmm. I what I find really interesting is this notion of patient endurance. Mm-hmm. Because the the word in the original is very much linked to our capacity for testimony or to testify. So it's almost as if our fear and our commandment keeping and our belief in the faith of Jesus are ultimate weapons in the arsenal of the remnant to bear witness to who God is. And as we've been talking before, this seems to make sense because after all, isn't revelation this ultimate courtroom room drama where we are having to bear witness to who God is? That's true. Yeah. Um, The book of Revelation does portray um, us. And you pointed this out in a previous study that the judgment, I think it was last week when we mm-hmm. talked about the judgment, how it's it's not necessarily us being judged, but God being judged, right? Mm-hmm. And so that courtroom dynamic of that that is the metaphor for for the book of Revelation. Yeah. 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 You know, that that is an interesting connection you're making between the patient endurance of the saints on part of, because a lot of times, like you said, we have in Adventism focused on the last two, which mm-hmm. is um, keeping his commandments and remaining faithful to Jesus. And like you said, there is something beautifully um, comprehensive about those statements, depending, also depending on how you interpret the phrase, the faith of Jesus, right? Um, the, the lesson study talks about it's not faith in Jesus, but the faith of Jesus is the type of faith that Jesus had. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, I think grammatically, you could also lean towards the type, not just the faith that Jesus has, but also faith in Jesus as well. So there is, there is, there are possibilities both ways. Um, but if you do take it that way, maybe, maybe John was leaning on a little bit of ambiguity there. It is wonderfully comprehensive. This is the type of faith that led Jesus to die on the cross, right? That kind of faith in Jesus, so that 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 faith of Jesus. But it's also a faith in Jesus and what He's done for us. Um, and having that level of faith in what God has done for us, um, that that link between faith and works, hmm. the commandments and and the faith of Jesus, I think that that is a beautifully comprehensive thing. But but because of our emphasis on that, we have tended to sh- not really talk about the patient endurance of the saints hmm. as much. Yeah, and we'll talk about what this idea of patient endurance means. But I want to I want to just pick up something that you said. Uh, you noted that grammatically, it can be read either way. It can be the faith. Here are those who possess the faith of Jesus, or here are those who possess ultimate faith in Jesus. If you would have asked me years ago, I I kind of would have uh, just because of. John's almost almost clumsy use of Greek. Mm-hmm. I would have I would have hedged and said uh, it's the faith of Jesus, mm-hmm. um, because that that language. Um, if if you read the if you read how it's how it spills out in Greek, it's very it's it's a Semitic construction. Mm-hmm. And so I think 99% of times, if you read it and you hear the Semitic construction, I would agree with our traditional uh, and what the lesson is pointing to, which says it is the faith of Jesus Mm. that the remnant then is called to possess. 
I don't I think though this is the one percent time where you you ignore a little bit the Semitic construction hmm. and you look at the Greek context the context the linguistic context that John is, is is trying to pull up and the reason I say that is because that phrase is preceded by this idea of keeping the commandments hmm. and it seems like John is saying hmm. that it is our faith in Jesus that serves. Remember, this is uh, th this is ultimately about our capacity to interpret what is happening. So the three mm -hmm. angels, the three angels speak, and now we are we are entrusted to provide a hermeneutical analysis mm. of these messages. Right? Um, you have. The mark, the name, the sulfur, the torment, and all that language, hyperbolic as it is, demands interpretation. Mm -hmm. So if you read the, the message of the third angel, and we'll get to that, friends, a little uh, later on in our quarter, they will drink of the wine of God's fury. Mm -hmm. They will be tormented with burning sulfur. Uh, there, uh, there will be no rest for those who worship the beast. Uh, there in or for anyone who receives this mark and then it's almost like John does this 180 so you have these three messages that are building yeah it's it's a it's a narratival crescendo where we prefer the first angels message because it kind of is more straightforward worship God give him glory and then fallen fallen is Babylon and it, it starts it starts necessitating um, some prophetic and interpretive imagination and then by the time the third angel speaks we're really called to pull out our interpretive tools and mm. our and our imagination as we're painting these images so i would propose that what happens from verse 12 on mm. is john is trying to provide you the hermeneutical or the interpretive framework for the three angels message mm. And so that's why I, I started by saying, I think this is the one time where it's not the remnant possesses the faith of Jesus. Rather, what I think John is saying is, if you want to understand how to have patient endurance, and more importantly, if you want to understand how to keep the commandments hmm. so that you won't be coupled with the beast, then you need to have faith in Jesus. In other words, the gospel, and I'm going to use that old uh, Adventist language to interpret this verse. Uh, the gospel is the lens through which you interpret the Old Testament. Hmm. And I think that's really important to do. Hmm. Because what seems to be happening then isn't that the remnant is called to follow this, this the Decalogue with the fourth commandment shining brighter than the others. Rather... The remnant is called to to look at Christ and in viewing and seeing Christ living a life that is consistent with Christ's call for for the church. Wow. So then that becomes I like how you said that 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 gospel becomes the lens through which mm. we interpret not just the three angels messages but also all of scripture. Right. Wow. That gospel that Jesus, God became man, lived and died and resurrected mm -hmm. so that we could also be resurrected with him into a new mm -hmm. life, an everlasting life. Mm -hmm. That becomes, that, that our dependence on him, that faith in him and what he's done for us ultimately becomes that lens through which we are able to keep the commandments themselves. And it would make sense contextually. Hmm. Because we spent last week talking about uh, the gospel, right? The everlasting gospel. Mm. And it seemed like you and I uh, agreed that perhaps what is being talked about uh, sans the definite article is not the gospel, which is Jesus came, died, and resurrected. Mm. But rather, there are good news mm. for us. God is still in control. And so I think... If John would have written the gospel, right, mm. 
uh, so keep the commandments and have the gospel, mm-hmm. it would be confusing for the audience, right? Because mm. you have Evangelion at the beginning of the third angel message. Yeah. And so that would breed some confusion. And that's why there's this ambi- ambiguous Greek construction, right? Faith, the faith of Jesus. And you're saying, what is that? Mm. Um, and I think for John, that is to believe in now what we understand as, as you mentioned, the gospel, mm. uh, the death, life, and resurrection of Christ as the interpretive lens that allows us to now go back and say, okay, um, these three angels' messages, this especially this sulfur and fire and torment need to be looked at uh, with, through the lens of, of the gospel. Hmm. Wow. So he uses a different construction here because he doesn't want to confuse what he said in the Mm -hmm. first angel's message with the term, the gospel, right? The good news, because he's used that in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, Not talking about the good news of what Jesus did, but another good news Mm -hmm. that's coming. And then so at the end, when he talks about the good news of what Jesus has done, he uses this construction faith of Jesus. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, see, that would seem right to be consistent with mm-hmm. kind of what we shared, what we were talking last week. And so in a bid for consistency, mm. um, I, I think there, there is uh, something to that. And kind of as I poured over uh, this passage, I was thinking, wouldn't it be interesting that in a, pa- in a passage uh, that begins to build from the speci- from the specific to the very general, right? He starts with, look, give this, these are good news. This is uh, good news at this critical moment in Earth's history. Give God, uh, give honor and worship and fear to God who created everything. Hmm. Then it becomes a little more um, general. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Hmm. And obviously he's not talking about Rome itself. He, John is doing something really interesting with these with these three angels. Uh, Babylon can't be found on a map, and there's a reason for that, right? Mm. The reason why he's saying this is Babylon isn't just to be understood as a place, just mm-hmm. like Jerusalem isn't to be understood as a place. It's a mm. metaphor. So he begins with very specific language and then starts building all these metaphors. And he's saying, look, I, it's almost as if John is writing this and saying, I know that this is going to get confusing, particularly as you jump into the third angel's message. Mm. I know it's going to get confusing. I know that you're going to find a stark contrast between the Jesus that says, turn the other cheek and Christ the victor as depicted in the book. I know you're going to find some, some distractions with that. So I want to give you a hint so that you won't get lost. And that hint is, remember that Jesus that said, love your neighbors, uh, pray for those who persecute you, love your enemy. That Jesus is going to be key to understanding the fire and the sulfur and the torment um, and the beast and the mark and the numbers. Just keep that at the forefront of your mind, lest you get lost. So that marker you're talking about is Revelation 14, 12, mm-hmm. the marker of the, the, the fear, the uh, faith of Jesus mm-hmm. and keeping of his commandments that he's saying, remember that this is what defines you as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you, we, when we see the sulfur and see the torment and all of those, that needs to be seen, like you said, through the lens of those two, right. two facts. Right. Because otherwise what you have is really these disparate pictures. Mm. And I, I've talked to many, many uh, uh, New Testament scholar that will be clear and, and unambiguous and saying, well, it almost seems like they're talking mm. about two different people. Yeah. You've, got, you've got meek Jesus that says, love everyone and is placed on a cross for that. And then you've got fire in the eyes, Jesus, that will strike you down. Yeah. And many, many books have been written on how 
how these two different pictures of Jesus can cohabit uh, the same sacred literature. I think what John is suggesting is that they're not two different types of Jesus. It's that the Jesus of the gospel mm. interprets the fire in the eyes, sulfur and gnashing of teeth and pain and blood and all the other stuff that we're gonna that we're gonna see. And so it's it's almost as if constantly John is trying to draw or not just pictures in the Old Testament, but he's trying to push you back to this idea of Jesus as your interpretive lens. And I, I think, Joey, when we get in trouble interpreting Revelation, it's because that Jesus has very little to do with our current exegesis of Re Revelation. Hmm. We say, yes, Jesus loves the little children. Yes, Jesus turns the other cheek. Yes, Jesus said, F -f uh, Father, forgive them, for they knew not what they do. But now this Jesus will burn you and torment and smoke <laughs> will rise forever and ever. And we forget that starting in verse 8, Revelation 14 is metaphor. It's pure metaphor. And John is trying to say the way you interpret or you make sense of the metaphor is through Jesus. Yeah. Often we try to make sense of Jesus through the metaphors. <laughs> I love that. We should interpret the metaphors through what we know about Jesus mm -hmm. rather than interpret Jesus through, through the, the metaphors. metaphors. That's so powerful. Yeah, because like we said, throughout the book of Revelation, the, the scene, the image that, of, that we need to keep in our minds throughout it, it is that Jesus is not just the lion, he's also the lamb mm -hmm. who was slain. And actually it is through being slain as the lamb that he is able to open up the seals, he's, open, he's able to overcome, all of those things, his power comes from the act of sacrifice that Jesus does. So that metaphor should be it's not, it's not a conquesting Jesus that is the, the primary metaphor of the book of Revelation, although that imagery is there, right? We have, to be, we have to be honest with the fact that the powerful Jesus is present throughout the book of Revelation, but that is not the primary, primary metaphor for Jesus found throughout the, right. the book. But, you know, that, that actually has to do with a question that I was having as I was reading about this, this term fear, right? Mm -hmm. Phobos. And we, it, the, the lesson did a great job of talking about how fear is not being scared, but being in awe. And yet, um, the, in some ways that it's used, there seems to be a hint of what we would traditionally, or mm -hmm. what in English we would call fear as well. Not just awe and worship, but also fear. Like when Jesus says, fear not those who can um, hurt your body, but the, the one who can destroy your soul, right? And so when I read that, yes, there is awe there, but there's also an element of fear there. So is fear also present? What we typically think about as fear um, of being scared, also somewhat present in the biblical concept of fear and awe. So Rudolf Otto, who's a sociologist of religion, would say yes. Yeah. Um, religion is about, after all, inhabiting this liminal space, right, between what is and what ought to be, what we can see and what we we can wish for. It's it's living and inhabiting in that space. And I think Otto's brilliant in that he says that in order to inhabit that space responsibly. Uh, there is a full range of human emotions mm -hmm. that you feel. And so uh, the paradox of religious encounters in his mind is that you have awe and wonder, mm -hmm. but that awe and wonder, the mystery itself causes fear mm -hmm. because fear is a natural human response to that which we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I think Otto is is right in, in describing it like that from a sociological or anthropological standpoint. Hmm. You see something you don't understand and you're afraid yeah. until you understand it. Yeah. So uh, with apologies to Otto, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to simplify um, his work uh, in Search for the Divine uh, and his idea of liminal spaces into a, something that we can understand uh, for our conversation. I remember going in uh, to a college algebra uh, exam. Yeah, I didn't 
particularly care for math. Uh, and so I went into this to this exam and uh, I waited till my senior year to take it and um, this this class had the well it had the potential to ruin my GPA to do a lot of uh, a lot of things to the point that if I didn't pass then I wouldn't graduate etc cetera, etc cetera. so I looked at it and I remember the first the first test I it was like a completely different language it was foreign it was and I, I started feeling uh, a lot of anxiety, anxiety, particularly as it pertained to algebra. I didn't mm. understand the symbols, didn't understand the concepts. Uh, then, however, uh, one of my teachers, who uh, is uh, who's married to a lovely, lovely friend of mine now, who works at the conference. Hi, Rosie, Mr. Hing. Um, I know you guys watch. He kind of took me, took the time to demythologize these concepts. Mm. And once I understood the concepts, I didn't I wasn't afraid anymore. Yeah. When you're talking about fear, it seems like fear ought to be a response to the mystery mm -hmm. and the majesty that is God mm -hmm. because it's something that we don't understand. That's why John is so clear in saying wait a second you're going to be afraid unless you have the capacity mm. to take all this meta language mm. and make it specific in the person and the body of Christ. Mm. Because that's the most basic thing you can understand about God. It's not all there is about God. Just like if you, for our math whizzes out there, if you want to, if you continue going past uh, college algebra, you get into calculus and you get into ever more complex language. Jesus is kind of the most basic equation, right? Mm. God loves us, loved us so much that he became incarnate. That's the most basic equation to understand God. Mm. So you take the complex and you simplify it. And once you simplify it, you begin to understand it. And once you begin to understand that the hope is that fear then is replaced by faith. Mm, I love that. I love that, that fear is replaced by faith, which is why you talked about the faith of Jesus Correct. being the interpretive lens Correct. that helps us to understand. And he's like the key that unlocks mm -hmm. the rest of the equations, right? He's that simple, mm -hmm. basic concept that helps you to understand the more and more. Mm -hmm. Not that Jesus is basic, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. But in, and that speaks to Jesus, right? You yeah. remember learning Greek, and Greek is a really complex language. Yeah. And so I think a lot of uh, seminarians or uh, theology majors in college feel a lot of trepidation when it comes to Greek. Yeah. And that's why you don't start by parsing uh, revelation when you're that's not what you do first the first semester of or first quarter of Greek you start with the luo declensions mm. the luo declensions it's not going to work always and it's not going to always make sense but if you can master that one sheet of paper with all the declensions mm -hmm. uh, to, to that simple verb you start being less intimidated by the language and yeah. so Jesus is uh, the Luo declension, if you will, for, for, for the New Testament. He's the general rule that helps us to unlock. Mm -hmm. And there are other complicating factors, but yeah. I love that. I love that. And I love this, how your teacher became um, the interpreter mm -hmm. of, of, of math for you, of algebra mm -hmm. for you, and how we as Christians get to be that for for our fellow people, mm -hmm. sojourners on this journey towards understanding God, that we can help be those people that unlock the mysteries of God and make it a little bit more um, sensical, so that we so that the fear turns into faith. Mm -hmm. And yet, there is an element to God that, like you said, with math, that is always going to be mysterious, Correct. right? Because the deeper and deeper, like we may get, you know, I, I've been working with my daughter in sixth grade math and, you know, I can I can get that and I can teach that to my daughter and I've been working with my other daughter in, on algebra and I can do that. But the further and further you go, the more complicated it gets. And so there's always going to be, it seems like there would always be a little bit of mystery, at least a little bit of mystery and a little bit of fear. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there, there ought to be, um, 
because as God continues, and this is, I think, the beauty of believing in God as a dynamic construct rather than something mm-hmm. static, because this process of learning, being afraid, and then allowing uh, a community or a person uh, or incarnation itself to guide you through, mm-hmm. uh, that that dynamic process can be replicated throughout eternity. When mm-hmm. Ellen White says that the cross will be the study of eternity, mm-hmm. this is what she's talking about. Yeah. She's as you as you spend more and more time with a God that is dynamic mm. um, and not domesticated, you see these aspects uh, to God. And obviously you, you have awe because you don't understand it. Yeah. And then God comes and says, well, let me explain that to you. Yes. And so you get it and the fear dissipates and it, 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 it is replaced by a deeper sense of faith. Yeah. And then... Um, God will reveal something else about God's self that that is uh, that is new and dynamic, mm. and so the process replicates into eternity, which for people with my makeup, with my mental makeup, is is really appealing, mm. uh, because to believe in God as a dynamic uh, construct makes the prospect of eternity very appealing. Mm. It's not playing harps in heaven, looking at lions and lambs sleeping, you know, next to each other. It's this process by which you're constantly engaged with a creation that is dynamic because the creator itself is dynamic. Mm. So you're constantly learning and relearning and relearning and reinterpreting uh, created reality. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And so friends, um, if you haven't caught this already, um, Pastor Miguel has a voracious appetite for learning, as you can probably have Mm -hmm. guessed. And with God, there will be an unlimited opportunity to continue to Mm -hmm. learn about him and to continue to grow. And that's why I, I, I... grab onto a word that you said earlier, and that's the word paradox. Mm -hmm. God is like the ultimate paradox, Mm -hmm. not because God contradicts himself, but because it's he's beyond our ability to completely categorize and box in, right? right? And so we have these concepts like divine and human, Mm -hmm. right? Which seem paradoxical. Um, Faith and commandments. Faith and works, right? That that whole dynamic that seems paradoxical, and this idea of fear, awe, love, and fear still merge together in one in God. So that that God will always continue to stimulate our our wonder and awe because He is too big for us to mm-hmm. comprehend fully. Yeah, and and what I love about God is God's malleability. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just because the paradox is, is diverse mm-hmm. in the way you play with the paradox. Yeah. Um, like you said, for me, it's the, the idea of kind of delving into new understandings of how, of how God loves and how God operates is very appealing. There's other people that are more relationally driven. Mm-hmm. But that that interplay where God reveals a, a a different side, a dynamic side to God's relational self with us, that's also going to be mm. something that happens uh, throughout eternity. Uh, some of us are more experiential, and we love experiences. And God will God relates to us not just intellectually or relationally. God relates to us. Uh, through experientially. And so you'll have these new experiences that open up a new vista of who God is. Mm-hmm. And then that produces fear and then faith. And so the par- it, it's, it's not just that it's a paradox. It's mm-hmm. that it's the paradox itself is dynamic in the mm-hmm. way you interplay with it, uh, which, which then leads us to, to go back to the book of Revelation and to say... Mm-hmm. The only danger when interacting with that paradoxical dynamic God that refuses to be domesticated is when you say there's only one interpretation to the book. Mm. Because when you do that, then um, if you if you're like me, you're gonna you're gonna try to base it 
uh, um, purely intellectual, uh, you know, intellectual, an intellectualized approach. If you're experiential, you're going to look at this and say, mm -hmm. man, I wonder what it's like to have torment, that experience of torment and sulfur forever and ever. If you're relational, uh, mm -hmm. you're going to say, at least in the third angel's message, um, oh man, I wonder what it's like to be cut off from co-mutual relationships with, with, uh, with, with God. When you say there's only one way to interpret it, then you're you're subtracting the fact that the the paradox itself it, it's revelation and God is not just paradoxical. The paradox itself needs to be dynamic. Wow, I like how you use those words: dynamic, um, malleable, adaptable. This idea that God God connects with us um, where we are and where we need mm. to. Because this is what I'm getting from what you said, that we we are all different as mm -hmm. people, and we're in different stages of our lives as people, different places of faith development as, as maturity. And so God adapts to us. The word that we often use um, is condescends, right? Mm -hmm. But that has kind of a negative connotation right. in, our, in our context. So I love the word adapt. He adapts to us to reach us where we're at. And he shows us an aspect of himself that has always been an aspect. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that God is like all, all of a sudden changing completely from right. who he was. He's showing an aspect of himself that has always been a part of himself, but does that in a way that connects with that person mm -hmm. in that context. But for this person in this context, in the different generation, maybe he shows a different aspect mm. of himself. And what I hear you saying is where we get in trouble is when we just assume that that is the only emanation of God, mm -hmm. that's the only aspect of God that that exists. And we try to convince other the person over here that you've got to accept my way of experiencing God because that's the only way to experience God. Right. Is that right? That's is, exactly yeah. right. And so the question then becomes, what is needed in order to offer each other that type of freedom hmm. in our approach to to experiencing God in whatever God, God in whatever ways God reveals God's self to us? And the answer is patient endurance. Hmm. So that's why he starts right with patient endurance, because what is what is needed most of all uh, when it comes to seeing how other people interact with both the commandments and the commandments as understood through the faith of, through faith in Jesus is I need to be patient mm -hmm. um, and I need to be unflappable in how patient I am. Um, it's not that I don't think that the message of revelation is hold on help is coming soon, mm. which is kind of the way that we've interpreted patience and patient endurance, right? Mm. We've often interpreted patient endurance as, you know, God's not here yet, but just hold, hang on by your fingernails. Uh, Jesus is coming soon. Mm. And there might be, that message might be helpful to some people, but I don't think Revelation is a book uh, that is to be read and treasured by those who, who are hanging them hanging on by their fingernails or white knuckling faith. I think Revelation is a book uh, that teaches how to that teaches us how to be how to do church better. And in that sense, I think there is an ecclesiology to Revelation that is often not uh, not explored. Um, the message is, after all, to churches. So what if this patient endurance isn't, hang on, God is coming soon, but rather it's, hang on, uh, there's going to, none of the beasts and the ghouls of Revelation are as terrifying as the ones that we've come up with in our interpretations of the book. And lest we be uh, too judgmental or dogmatic with that, God is telling us, be patient mm. with people who, who understand ecclesiology. The way to do church is by being patient, unflappably patient with those with whom you disagree. Because after all, as you said, God uh, is experienced in different ways. So patient endurance, not just as an endurance of the trials that we face, uh, but endurance with each other, mm. patience with one another. Mm -hmm. 
is an aspect of this patient endurance. Mm. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't ever thought of it that way before, but that that is so powerful because like we've been talking about, the three angels message has at times by some people been seen as a way of sort of weeding out those who don't belong, mm-hmm. right? And that, I mean, the message of fallen, fallen Babylon, and we don't have to go into this because we're going to talk about that um, right. as we as we move on. But but especially um, the second angel's message and, uh, you know, the third angel's message as well has sort of led us to this idea that we need to reject others who have an alternative experience or view of who God is. Mm-hmm. Like that is what it means that is who has fallen that is what has fallen and so we need to move on and there is there is an aspect to to uh an improper worldview that revelation confronts but it may not be the type of worldview that we have generally pointed towards right and you've already hinted at this um in in previous lessons that it has to do with how we see god as lion or lamb and and how we view who god is and what it means to overcome but but because of that message we've sort of uh, erred on the side of saying okay this is this is a message of exclusion and yet you're kind of reversing that here by saying actually this idea of patient endurance is leading us to a little bit of more of inclusion. And actually the first angel's message, when we say fear God and give him glory, that means allow God to be who God mm-hmm. is rather than who we view God to mm-hmm. be, right? That he is someone who is beyond our compre- our ability to uh, narrow down to one emanation, one, um, one box of who he is, um, that he is great and awesome and beyond our comprehension and sometimes paradoxical so that maybe other people's experiences with who God is could be as valid as the one that we Mm. have. And it's it's funny that you mentioned that because you are right. There is an improper view, view, but the improper view isn't determined by it's bad, and I use the term bad broadly, it's bad theology. Mm. It's bad theology is, is a result of a worldview that is non-inclusive, mm. right? It's, it's <laughs> what the beast is in the end is intolerant. Mm. And so it's, it, it's that worldview, I think, that, that we are so tempted to walk towards. And I find it, you know what, I find it so comforting that as we start dealing with these concepts in a new light, those concepts are being supported by what we know about who we are as people, right? Social scientists will tell you that resiliency is contingent. Your, Your capacity for resiliency, which if you're thinking about this is a patient, this is the patient endurance of the saints. I, I can hear John in, a, in, in an age of Brene Brown saying, this is resiliency. And resiliency itself is, is contingent on your support framework, mm-hmm. on what system you have and how many, how open you are to uh, not only to empathy, and by empathy we mean to inhabiting other worldviews, but how open are you, how malleable, how adaptable, how adaptable are you uh, to interacting with other worldviews without being judgmental. Mm. And so I think that's what it means to be be resilient. That's Mm. what it requires to be resilient. And in the end, I, I don't think that this should be challenging, Joey, for Adventists. Adventists, after all, are a group that that is defined by patient endurance and resiliency and the resiliency is meted out in our capacity for adaptability in the way we interact with who god is and the worldviews uh and the worldviews of of other people um when adventism switches from 
a Millerite movement to an Adventist movement, that requires the adoption of different worldviews. And then when we leave the short, shut door behind in, in the 1860s, that again requires adapting some other worldviews. And in 88, when we, when we shift again, that requires... So Adventism is kind of the paragon, I think, of flexibility. Yeah. And so I think that is, that is why... Um, if we're if we're flexible in in our understanding of theology, maybe the time has come for us to be more flexible in our ecclesiology as well. Wow, that is so powerful. There's so much to unpack there. We don't have the time to do that, but I, that is such a powerful thing. I mean, I'm not a blacksmith, but the imagery that comes into my mind is the conversion of iron to steel. Mm. Right? Iron is brittle. It's strong but brittle so that it shatters if you use it wrong. Mm -hmm. But steel incorporates carbon and creates space so that it becomes flexible. Mm -hmm. And the flexibility lends for resiliency. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you're pointing out, that Adventism has had a history with flexibility, paradigm flexibility that has allowed us to be resilient. And that's the same type of endurance and resilience that God is calling us to at the end of time. That's a beautiful way of closing it with that image of a of a blacksmith, God the divine blacksmith yeah. kind of hammering us out. Why don't you pray for us as we close? Lord, if ever a time we needed endurance, it is now. We are facing challenges um, internally, externally, in our community with such loss and hurt. And it makes us want to shout for you to return now. And you called us to patient endurance and endurance, not just as Miguel pointed out, not just in holding on to what we have, but also having the flexibility to adapt to our situations, to allow you to speak into these moments of pain and teach us new ways of being and seeing. And so we ask that you give us that endurance, the endurance to continue align with your character in following your commandments and also that an endurance that makes a resilient faith in you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Joey. Thank you for watching. We have nothing else to say. Be patient, be endurant, be thoughtful, be kind to others, have the faith of Jesus until we meet again. Mm -hmm.